Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. The pressures on our healthcare system have been unrelenting. Ottawa's Montfort Hospital was one of the latest to have to temporarily close its emergency room because of a shortage of nurses. And in Alberta, the Fort Saskatchewan Community Hospital has had to close its obstetrics unit for at least two weeks. Last month in New Brunswick, a man died waiting in the ER. People are still getting sick with COVID, and nearly 15% of Canadians don't have a family doctor. It's left people and politicians wondering what can be done, and whether privatizing the system is part of the answer. There's no problem with a little bit of outsourcing or a little bit of, you know, support for the system. But what we're really talking about is is a scale of privatization that we've never really considered before. Today, we're talking to Dr. Alika Lafontaine, a practicing anesthesiologist from Alberta. He's the new president of the Canadian Medical Association, which is an advocacy group for doctors that also lobbies governments. And he's the first Indigenous president of the organization. Alika will tell us why he thinks privatizing our healthcare system isn't going to work. This is The Decibel. Alika, congratulations, first of all, on on becoming the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you very much. Politicians like Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones, they've quibbled with using the word crisis to describe what's happening to healthcare across the country right now. It disturbs me, as I'm sure it does many, when they find that their local hospital has to close for four hours, a shift, a period of time. But to suggest that it is in crisis is completely inappropriate. It's not unprecedented. Though. Do you think we're in a crisis? The words we use in medicine are really important. You know, how we communicate disease processes, you know, how severe things are. I think it's very appropriate to call what the healthcare system is going through right now a crisis. In fact, things are collapsing or near collapse in a lot of places. And I think over the past couple of years in the pandemic, our perception of what's normal in the healthcare system has really shifted. It's not normal for emergency rooms to close. It's not normal for waiting lists to turn into multi-year queues. It's not normal for people not to be able to access, you know, a family physician in the community. But we've all become used to these things. And so the crisis sometimes doesn't feel like a crisis because of what's happened over the past bit. But we're, we're definitely in a crisis right now. So those are pretty strong words. Crisis, collapse. This is a serious situation mm-hmm. then. Absolutely. Yeah, it's probably the most severe situation for the healthcare system that I can remember in my career. One of the solutions that we're hearing a lot about these days is is potentially looking at ways to privatize the healthcare system. Uh, This is being talked about in Ontario. Premier Doug Ford has been insisting, though, that OHIP won't disappear, um, but that the province needs to be innovative in in its solutions. And uh, there's one thing we'll guarantee Uh, You'll always be covered by OHIP, not the credit card, but OHIP. When we're talking about privatization here, what what does that actually mean? Like, what is privatized Mm -hmm. healthcare? 
I think it's a hard concept for Canadians to wrap their head around. So for myself, there, there's two types of privatization that I think people are talking about that, that are very different things. The first is private systems supporting the existing healthcare system in order to remain sustainable. And then the other part is outsourcing. And so outsourcing is actually the much more scary type of privatization. Can you break both of those down for us, though? Like, what does what yeah, yeah, each absolutely. of those mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And so I'll start off with outsourcing because I, I think this is the one that people can really wrap their heads around. Whenever a system outsources something, it actually loses the capacity to provide that service within the system. And it gives it to someone else. And the assumption with outsourcing is that you can get things at lower cost. But what you trade off is reliability, accessibility, and then also oversight of that process. That also leads to higher chances of parts of the system failing because you now have hundreds of people involved in, you know, patient care instead of, you know, two or three like existed in, you know, a single centralized system. You also have no control once those those parts fail. For example, nursing provided in Ontario by private headhunter nurse supply companies. Hmm. Um, you, you really have no control. Because the government's paying for it, we don't see it. Now, the next step in this outsourcing is to actually take those costs that are currently being held by the government and putting it onto the shoulders of patients. And sorry if this is a simple question, but can you just, mm-hmm. I guess, really spell it out for me? How is this different yeah. than the, the way that hospitals are, are run today? There's no problem with a little bit of outsourcing or a little bit of you know, support for the system. But what we're really talking about is, is a scale of privatization that we've never really considered before. You know, the, the fact that we are dependent on nursing staffing entities in order to maintain basic staffing levels at hospitals, outsourcing has gotten to a point that it's, it's completely dismantled the internal capacity of the healthcare system to actually do its job. Hmm. Outsourcing was the second of, of two elements of privatization you mentioned. Can you mm-hmm. touch on the first one as well? So one of the big reasons why we're currently in this health crisis is that governments have become obsessed with cost cutting. We've cut so far in educating, you know, new trainees in ensuring that enough people are actually working shifts to ensure safe, you know, patient ratios or that working environments aren't so overwhelming that, you know, people dread going to work every day. People are, are leaving these systems because we, we've cut way too far. And it's it all goes back to this this idea, like this concept that, that's out there and broadly accepted right now, that cost cutting is inherently a good thing. Hmm. Is that related to privatization or is that a funding thing? I think that's a philosophy thing. You know, there, there's a lot of things that we've adopted that just haven't worked out for the average citizen you know things like we were promised that we'd eventually cost cut our way into sustainability you know that that hasn't materialized when it comes to healthcare. Uh, we were told that you know there, there were too many medical learners you know too many doctors and nurses and other things that were were getting put through our education system um you know that hasn't come true and so it, it's really a wholesale reevaluation of what we believe about what we need and i i think that that's really the path towards fixing the problems that we have right now. Some doctors do support a model of privatization. Why is that? I think that there's different incentives for people to support privatization. Some of it is ideological as well. Um, there's often the comparison of Canada to other jurisdictions that 
you know, have private care. And, you know, people will often throw out, you know, people there are, are very satisfied. I, I think if you look at the actual data behind those comments, you'll find that that there's there's a sizable proportion of providers in jurisdictions that have mixed models that, that are actually quite unhappy. When you say, sorry, when you say incentives, mm-hmm. is, is that more money, essentially? So if, if you're at the top of a primary primary health system, then yeah, there is definitely the incentive for uh, making money within a private system. I mean, that is the definition of a private market. And I, I don't think that any of us who are advocating for the public system are somehow saying that it's 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 people shouldn't go to work expecting to get paid. Uh, the question is, is whether that, that's your driving factor. So let's let's talk about maybe solutions. You're you are the head mm-hmm. of the the CMA now. What is the mm-hmm. CMA doing in order to to find some of these solutions? Yeah. So the CMA has been working for the past uh, year bringing together stakeholders within the system. You know, we we work very closely with uh, the Canadian Nursing Association and other advocacy groups in order to pull out exactly what these solutions are. You know, there are things that we could do right now that would have a big effect. You know creating retention incentives for healthcare workers, especially in areas of greatest need. It's one of the areas that that could have impact, you know, ensuring that we're creating safe working environments, addressing issues that prevent healthcare workers from spending more time caring with patients. You know, we know that the administrative burden is incredibly high for folks. We were told that when we brought in electronic medical records across the country, that that would lead to efficiencies that could then lead to better patient care. It's very hard to talk to a patient while looking at a computer screen. Uh, increasing mental health supports. And then finally, scaling up collaborative interprofessional primary care. So, you know, Canadians can access timely primary care. You know, these are all immediate things that we could do as part of an action plan. And then there's other medium and long-term things we can do as well. Hmm. It's interesting you, you talked about um, electronic medical records as actually being a bit of a, a burden in this way, because we spoke to another doctor before in this program that said this is actually the key to saving a lot of time in the healthcare system is to modernize things electronically um, so that we actually can share information faster. So I, I think where you align those two perspectives is realizing that work has to get done anytime you see a patient. And just because you bring in an electronic medical record does not eliminate the need for that work to happen. So the question is, is who does the work? Is our current model the most efficient one for Canada, would you say? I think centralization in a lot of areas makes a lot of sense. We're not the same as other countries we often compare ourselves to. You know, if you compare Canada to, say, the Netherlands and say, you know, we're so much lower in the OECD when it comes to our, our healthcare system ranking, Canada's 13 separate provincial and territorial health systems. You know, the Netherlands is one. And so when you have a centralized system, you have the ability to have consistent practice standards across the country. You know, you decrease the friction for when people come into the system. You know, you create a pathway for international medical learners, for example, to actually be licensed to be doctors and nurses and other things instead of trying to navigate these siloed systems. I think if we move towards that sort of model where we have better and more effective national coordination, where we have better national planning when it comes to strategic resources like health human resources, 
um, we could absolutely have a better system. This is a, a challenging thing, though, because that takes away power from the provinces. Canada's system is, is kind of based on autonomy of provinces here. So this is this is the issue that we tend to run into then. Yeah, I, I, I think you can look at the you can look at the relationship between the provinces and the federal government in the same way that you can look at the physician patient uh, relationship. So we, we used to live in an age where you would go to the doctor, the doctor would tell you something, they wouldn't really explain it, but they just say, you know, you do this, this will fix your problem and they'd send you on your way. And patients accepted this because that was just the way that power worked. And what we realized over time was that it was an ineffective model. And I think that this is the same struggle that the provinces and the federal government have to deal with right now. You know, is your fixation on power or is your fixation on having better outcomes? You know, having lower costs, ensuring that we don't run into these cyclical crises that seem to be happening more and more in the past few years. And I, I think we're, we're quickly coming to a point where provinces and the federal government aren't going to be able to avoid this conversation. And I think what the CMA is really calling for is for this conversation to start because it's not actually happening right now. You mentioned a bit earlier about investing in, in primary care, the importance of investing in primary mm -hmm. care. Uh, we know that nearly 5 million Canadians don't have a family doctor or primary health care provider. So this is a big issue. How could mm -hmm. more government funding, how could that help get more family physicians? It would have been great to have governments across the country invest in education, you know, five, ten years ago. That that would have been the ideal situation for, for where we're at right now. But they, they still can invest today, you know, um, increasing the amount of medical students that come into, you know, medical school, uh, increasing the number of residency positions. Uh, but in parallel to that, you actually have to create better situations for folks to work in. So when trainees look at the experience of the family physician, it actually ends up being a desirable, you know, working environment. Hmm. Is, so is that a, like an environment, a work environment kind of thing, or is that a compensation thing? Like, is it, is it that working as a family physician doesn't actually earn you as much money as, as specializing in something else? I think that's definitely part of it. You know, the, there is income inequity across the country when you compare certain types of specialties. And, and family physicians aren't the only ones that, uh, relative to, to other types of doctors, uh, aren't compensated in the way that they probably should. But you also have to provide those other supports. It's, it's not just about income. It's also about all the other parts. If you're the only family physician in your area of the country and you're on call every day without arrest, and when you leave for vacation or you leave to you know, attend your kid's graduation or some other family event, you actually have to close down your practice and suddenly there is no health care hmm. in that area. Um, these are the situations that family physicians across the country are dealing with right now. And in order to fix that problem, it, it's more changes in, in working conditions than, than just money. We've talked about a lot of different issues facing the current mm -hmm. system uh, and some potential ways to solve things. So I wonder, now that you are president of the CMA, what is your top priority here? My top priority, I, I think the mandate of anyone working in the healthcare system is to address the hopelessness that exists right now for folks working on the front line and elsewhere. You know, people really don't believe that things will change. And 
in order to create that environment of hope again, I think there's very specific things you can do. You know, making sure that you you tell things how it is. You know, I, I think the the idea of you know gaslighting and and you know dressing up really severe situations with you know flowery language is something that's that's real in the healthcare system right now. We we have to use words like collapse. We have to use words like crisis because that is literally where we're at. When I come in to resuscitate a patient in, in my work as an anesthesiologist, the very worst thing I can do is make it seem like the situation isn't as severe as it actually is. And once you truthfully talk about and, and clearly talk about what's going on, the next step is is start to engage those folks who actually know what the problems are. And so my, my top priority is, is really renewing that hope uh, among frontline providers, physicians in particular, and patients, that the healthcare system can get better and it will get better. And I, I strongly believe that that is, that is possible. And the second is making sure those conversations happen where we're asking better questions and, in effect, getting better answers. Alika, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.